for teachers, I would definitely say it's pedagogical praxis, right? So like, how are you transforming the narrative in the classroom? What, it, what information are you relaying to students? But for me in particular, what resources am I reading, right? Where am I getting my knowledge from? Understanding that there are those bias, stigma, stereotypes, da, 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 in the classroom, what am I doing to combat those within my head, within my subconscious, right? Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dreaming radically is a necessity if we are to reach a world of liberation for all marginalized peoples. Imagining the world we want to see and then fighting like hell to go and get it. Dream radically is a hope, a strategy, a goal of altering the status quo in our quest for social transformation. Join us on this journey. Let's dream. Hi, y'all. My name is Kelly Pyron Alvarez, and I'm an educational specialist with Foundation for Liberating Minds. I will be your host today. I'm joined today by Alham Carter and CJ Irvin. Today, we will be talking about decolonizing education from a student perspective. Just a disclaimer that all views and experiences are our own and should not be universally applied. So before we talk about what decolonizing education means to you and kind of what that looks like, I want you to introduce yourselves. Um, Alham, could you tell us a little about your educational background and experiences? Of course, Kelly. Uh, thank you for allowing me to be a guest today on the podcast. And I want to thank Jackie in the third space once again for always supporting FLM. But yeah, so I graduated from TCU uh, recently in 2020. So I have a degree in political science and race and ethnic studies. In terms of education, I've had pretty much everything you could think of. So I've had a public charter and a private school education. So for those in Oklahoma, I went to Nichols Hills Elementary. Then I went to Independence Charter Middle School. And then I went to Heritage Hall. And so I've had a wide variety of experiences that have kind of led me to where I am today and uh, where I am in this organization. CJ, the same for you. Could you introduce yourself and tell us a little about your educational background and experiences? Uh, yes, yes, I can. Hello, hello. Uh, thank you, Kelly. Uh, thank you, Jackie. And again, thank you to the third space. Um, for me, uh, I am a senior transitioning out of TCU and looking to go into grad school. I am receiving a degree this spring in criminal justice with an emphasis on comparative race and ethnic studies. My educational background looks very diverse, just like uh, Ali. I've done it all. Elementary for me at the very beginning was private school. Uh, from there, I ended up going to charter school. And following that, I went to two different public schools and graduated from DeSoto High School in 2017. So y'all had a wide range of education between public, private, charter. Which experience do you think was the best for you? And which one were you not exactly impressed with? CJ, I'll let you go ahead. For different reasons, I'll say that my experiences in education have been different. You know, in college, it's been very, you know, it's been a learning experience. I'll say that it's been a steady process of growth and understanding exactly like where I fit into the educational scene. I think the time that I most say enjoyed myself because of the environment, atmosphere, and culture, I was definitely high school. Um, but I will say that from a standpoint of maturation, I think that uh, my my experience at TCU has been the most fruitful in terms of experience uh, in just how I've been challenged and 
push to kind of see the world outside of myself and understand certain things that I necessarily didn't have to think of before I got here. I can't necessarily attach a, a value, I guess, to neither of my educational experience, whether that's elementary, secondary, or even post-secondary. Um, they all kind of gave me just a different perspective. So in public school, I think we were a lot more diverse. And uh, I don't usually like to use that word very lightly, but in terms of experiences, we were all very diverse. So whether that's you know race, ethnicity, uh, gender identity, socioeconomic status. That was the time where I really got to interact with just people who were different from me. But then when I got to say Heritage Hall and TCU, I interacted with a different social class, right? And in Heritage Hall, there was definitely this assumption that you would go to college. Cause I remember when I first began Heritage Hall, I wasn't necessarily looking at college. I thought about the military. I thought about just going to work. I'm a first generation college student. So that was Kind of what was available those were the only available options to me college wasn't necessarily a thing considering the debt and more just the financial the financial obstacles so i can't really like all three of them have kind of shaped my perspective on education today and just in general so i can't necessarily give a certain value but i think they're all valuable so with these different experiences and different forms of education you know, from elementary all the way to post-secondary, how has that helped you figure out? And how do you now define, I guess, decolonizing education? What does that mean? Ali, I'll let you go first. So to me, decolonizing the education is quite literally rewriting the narrative in the classroom. So who is the possessors of knowledge, right? Um, historically, it would be white people, right? That's kind of, that's who's really dictated what knowledge is passed down throughout the generations and uh, what's taught in the classroom. And so by decolonizing education system, to me, that means basically creating a space, an environment that's welcoming to all identities, right? But then also liberating and empowering those identities in the process. Um, there is no dominant ideology. There is no dominant identity. We need to create a space that's open for everyone and that allows them to flourish just as well. CJ, let's hear what you have to say. Then we'll come back and talk about how these kind of all work together. Well, yes, I definitely uh, and wholeheartedly agree with everything that Ali said. For me, I think additionally that when you look at decolonizing education, you have to look at it like from an all-encompassing and non-linear perspective. And what I mean by that is, is that when you look at education, you know, often we focus on just what it is that we learn in the classroom. Uh, but going back to my last answer about, you know, which level of my education I felt like was the most beneficial, the culture alone that was established at my high school to serve students best in a capacity to allow them to feel comfortable um, in their own skin, in their own identity, um, in their own voice. It was a space that offered uh, much collaboration, much thought. It was, as he said earlier, diverse in terms of just what you get. And from the nonlinear perspective, I believe that when you look at education, uh, as he said just a while ago, it's no dominant ideology. It's no straight line way to understanding how the world works and how to approach different aspects of real life. And I think once you look outside of very narrow viewpoints and actually open yourself up to the ideas and, you know, just the world, 
it can serve a great benefit to those individuals who are being taught, those individuals who are doing the educating, ultimately, you know, create an entirely different atmosphere that allows much more thought uh, and collaboration of students. I think it's really important to kind of figure those things out too, right? Like what works, what doesn't work? How can we make this the best environment for all students? No, like thinking about the different ways that decolonizing education takes place, I want to start with learning how you decolonize your own work. So what does that look like for you and the work that you do in the areas that you study and the work that you submit and any research that you do? How do you decolonize your own work? And CJ, we'll go ahead and start with you. I think that first starts with understanding your own limitations and capabilities. I think that too often we can get very, you know, caught up in trying to save the world. And, you know, even though it's in great passion and uh, it comes from a great place, we don't always think about the collateral damage that can be done by not doing the research, uh, by not, you know, actually educating ourselves before we look to do certain things. And I think with that, to create a system of checks and balances. So uh, having a pool of people, um, having a pool of knowledge that you reach back to, and you, you reference those things. You make sure that you hold yourself accountable first and foremost so that you're not disrespecting anyone else's identities. You're not disrespecting anyone's walk in life, say, through religion. It just has to be a system or a way of saying, okay, did I best advocate for the individuals whom I intended to with this work that I just did? Along with that, trying to figure out what are the best practices and the best ways of going about producing work for the benefit of students and anyone else who may be interpreting what you're putting out and following that, just maintaining flexibility. So understanding that you never truly know everything and understanding that it's always some area that you, you could have made a mistake, you could be wrong. And that is where those checks and balances work together with always being flexible enough to say, you know what, let me go back, re-educate myself and following that process, um, do better than what you did before. I'm gonna keep this one pretty brief. So it's basically just knowing and understanding your own bias, stigmas, stereotypes, prejudices, et cetera. Um, and then taking that in consideration throughout all your endeavors, right? And so how do you do that, I think is the question. And I think this also adds a little more depth to the last question you asked. And for teachers, I would definitely say it's pedagogical praxis, right? So like, how are you transforming the narrative in the classroom? What, it, what information are you relaying to students? But for me in particular, what resources am I reading, right? Where am I getting my knowledge from? Understanding that there are those bias, stigma, stereotypes, da, 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 in the classroom, what am I doing to combat those within my head, within my subconscious, right? So I have to rewrite my own narrative by basically just taking in uh, knowledge that combats this white master narrative that we've been kind of taught. As a student myself, like the way, especially in the work that I do, because my main work focuses on critical race theory, social justice, representation, race and identity in film and media, education. And so for me as a student, I primarily think about, okay, what am I reading? Like, who are the authors? Where is it coming from? And as a white woman, how am I approaching this in a way that does not contribute to any more violence against the communities that I'm working with? 
And so I think for me as a student, that's important, but I'm also a professor. And so as a professor, what I do is I pull, like I bring in as many diverse readings as I can. I try not to, if I'm bringing in outside readings into my classroom, I try to make sure that they are from people of color, that they have different perspectives than what my students are used to, especially teaching at a predominantly white institution. So I try to build on these different ideas the best that I can because our textbook is written by predominantly white people and from predominantly white perspectives. I'm wondering what are your thoughts on what you would like to see from professors? You know, are the things that I do where I just, or I bring in these readings and I try to look at these different perspectives, is that enough? Does it depend on the course? Are there other things that your professors have done to decolonize their classrooms that you've enjoyed or just haven't really worked? I'll almost start with you. I would definitely agree that resources is probably the main thing that teachers, professors can do to really combat that narrative that I was talking about earlier. However, it's also on the students to actually internalize that knowledge. Again, the teacher can create the, can create the environment for the students to learn, right? They can determine the pedagogical practices, as I said. However, how students engage with that is really on them. And so it's kind of a, it's a balancing act between the two. I agree. I think that it is a balancing act, but I also think that sometimes professors, or at least the ones that I've had, I'll use our statements, I apologize. The ones that I've had have an issue with teaching comprehensive competence or overall understanding of how I can apply this in real life and just content. And where a lot of subject matter is missed in how individuals are educating is, I'm going to give you something. I want you to go out, read it, do whatever you need to do to understand this information enough to take a test. Once you take that test, you're supposed to have all the knowledge that you need following this point to go be a critical thinking citizen in society. I think that is a backwards philosophy. You can't fully grasp the concept of what you're digesting if you never got into an actual phase of trying to unpack it. And I think that the very silent uh, fear of embracing uncomfortability is something that halts classrooms from actually going deeper and further into discussions uh, is one way, at least in my experience, that I think teachers have failed. And it's something that we can definitely do better in the future. So that leads me to my next question. Do you think that it's your responsibility as a student to help your professors decolonize their classrooms or their curriculum? Or is that on the professor? You know, like Alham, like you said, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, right? You can't make the students interpret things a certain way. You can hope, but you can't force anyone to do anything. So how does the student professor relationship work in decolonizing education? So I'm going to phrase it like this. And it's something that one of my mentors has always told me when I try to ask them a question that's probably a little difficult or too difficult for their knowledge, right? I don't know what I don't know. And I think this is what students typically probably assume happens like when you walk into the classroom. So when you walk into a classroom, right, there's almost this social power dynamic that just, and I quote unquote, right? That establishes itself as soon as they enter the classroom, right? They become the person, the knowledge provider, but they also are supposedly the most, the smartest person at the room at the same time on the subject matter that they're teaching, right? Or the course material. 
But on the student side, while they're probably the most in tune with the social or with the social climate, that's, you know, the current social climate, it's on the instructor to actually transform the environment itself. And so I can't necessarily hold the students accountable when they don't really know what exactly is going to be discussed, right? Maybe not the actual, not the topic in general, but for example, if we're talking about critical race theory, and this is my first time interacting with that subject matter, how can I challenge the professor, right? I can ask a lot of questions and I think for professors should be challenged, right? It sharpens them. I think it makes them better. However, I expect you to kind of teach me what the basis of critical race theory is, and then I will eventually form my own perception, and then I'll build on that from there. Hopefully, hopefully I engage the material enough and build on that, on that foundation that the teacher has laid down for me. But if the teacher himself has not actually addressed their own privilege, their own identities, their own oppressive tendencies, which I certainly hope they have, um, but I think often we find in the classroom that is especially within our education system today, that is not, you know, it's not fact. But again, it's not on the students. I think it's on the teachers for sure. I agree. I think at TCU specifically, I have found myself in a lot of situations where students are teaching teachers and then it turns into teachers asking students to teach classrooms and being the sole spokesperson or people for the group that they identify with. Uh, and I think that can be a very dangerous thing for that student and also for that classroom. One of the biggest mistakes that I think that a lot of educators who do that make is in presuming that it will still be internalized in the same manner. Uh, like Ali just said, there is a power dynamic in classrooms and some students who are not really invested or that don't see the whole picture of what say a, a educator is trying to do and saying, uh, you relate more to this than I do. Can you speak to the class on behalf of, of your own identity? It, it can sometimes turn into a joke session. And I think those are the environments where you primarily see how harmful it is to not have the educational background needed to teach certain subject matter. Uh, so to uh, more or less answer the question, I think that it is almost in entirely on the professor or on the teacher. Uh, however, I do think that in the event that you just do not know or you have a question, I don't think that it's anything wrong with asking, say, a student for feedback before presenting it. But you should have a very solid understanding before you come and ask me, how do I feel about a lecture that you're going to put on, say, about African-Americans, you know, during uh, the Atlantic slave trade? It should be detailed enough that I don't have to necessarily teach you, but I can help you if need be. But the majority of the work should be done by the professor. Yeah, and I think that with, you know, with that idea that you've you've talked about, CJ, we can get into a kind of a slippery slope. Yes, professors should have a firm grasp on what it is they're teaching. They should have checked their biases. You know, as, as Alham has also said, and I think some professors go into these conversations with good intentions, right? We've had, I think we've all had professors where they're like, yeah, like, this is great. Like, I'm, I'm comfortable with this. I've taught this before. Like, I've listened to student feedback. I've listened to other voices on this. And so they're actually prepared to have that conversation in class. And they're open to feedback from their students in different perspectives. I mean, I think that's kind of, as a professor, that's the goal, right? You want to be at that point 
But then I've also worked with professors where they didn't really have that. They didn't have that firm background or they weren't comfortable with any pushback from students. And then they got defensive or they just weren't confident, right? So, and then when you ask students, you know, as a white professor asking students of color, what's your perspective on this? It really quickly can turn into this idea that one student speaks for their entire culture, their entire race, right? And then that's really harmful for the student. And so it's kind of, it can, there has to be a balance, right? So... I don't know, what do you kind of think about how that balance works? You're like, have you seen that in action? Is that is that just me projecting my own experiences or thoughts? Oh, no, it's not you projecting. I've definitely seen that firsthand. To address something that you said, though, uh, and kind of like piggyback off of it, you know, teachers kind of getting defensive when they're challenged by students. But you presented this, your fragility should not impact my experience as a student your uncomfortability and as you said uh, confidence or lack thereof uh, should not impose on what i'm getting out of information that is supposed to kind of serve as a as a tool to create more competence within myself and, and within the other people in that classroom if you don't have the backbone i guess you would say or the nerve that i, I guess one may need whoever this teacher or professor may be who might find themselves in that situation. It can be, as I said earlier, perceived and not the best way. And I think the way that you want it to be internalized or interpreted can be lost just by the sole fact that some of the students in the classroom don't take you serious for not knowing more than say uh, they would or, or having enough respect for what you're teaching to create a space where that is all okay. I've definitely experienced it in the classroom. There are amazing professors and instructors out there. I had a particular sociology professor who was absolutely amazing and basically just acknowledging other identities and her privileges and then making me feel empowered in the classroom that I had a voice and just creating a space for me to do that. Not necessarily, you know, saying, hey, Ali, like, what is your idea? You know, you're the only black male in the classroom. So what, what do you think about this? But she created an inviting space that allowed students such as myself who, you know, walk into a TCU classroom, which is around 80, 75, 80% white, to feel as though I can talk without being condemned. And that was something that I just, is invaluable, right? And that's kind of, that's the epitome of what decolonizing education is, right? And, decol and that's what it looks like in the classroom. Well, that was kind of my next question, right? What is your ideal decolonized class or classroom look like? So I want it all, I guess. And I'll keep it real plain and simple for you. But uh, I want the Brittany Cooper. I want the Audre Lorde. I want the Bell Hooks, right? But I also want the Booker T. Washington, right? The Frederick Douglass. But then I also want that white supremacist. You know, I, I want to read all of it because I just kind of want to have this wide spectrum. Arming yourself with the most knowledge, I think, is what allows for discourse in the classroom. And discourse isn't always bad if it's productive. And the teacher... And the instructor and the professor, those are the people that kind of can dictate the ambiance of the classroom, right? So whether something is, if something is completely blasphemous, the teacher can stop that, right? Um, but this is also kind of alluding to another power dynamic, right? I think discourse is good, but it could be really bad as well. So I'm not sure what the classroom would look like without the power dynamic, but for what it is, I think the professor can turn that in by introducing resources and introducing different perspectives. But 
having that wide spectrum and that wide basis of knowledge. I think that's that's my ideal decolonized classroom. Piggybacking off of that, um, I, I agree with everything uh, that Ali said, and I think it was no better way to say it. For myself, I guess I'll add that I think in a very polarized and hypersensitive time, the best thing that we can do when we look at education is try to find ways to actively support um, one another, actively teach and foster environments that allow individuals to kind of see other people and and their life experiences outside of their own. How do you do that? Uh, That is something that that we're trying to work on uh, and it remains to be seen, but creating a environment that, you know, uh, altruism is kind of at the forefront of what being in the world looks like. And without understanding that, you know, nothing that say, you know, that can be taught in the classroom will ever truly be comprehended in the way that it was intended to be. But uh, yeah, everything that he said, I, I firmly agree with. Okay, so I have one more question. What is your radical dream? I'll start. Kind of going off of my my last answer, my radical dream is a world free of hate, uh, a world free of prejudice, a world free of ignorance. Now, that is very far-fetched. I'm very much so aware of that. But for me, uh, as someone who I, I've been told I have a bleeding heart, and I would do almost anything for those people who I care about. At the point that we, as people, uh, stop to say, what can we do to contribute for the next person? How can I potentially impact the life of someone who I don't know? I, you know, you, you may have never met me uh, before, but I would go out my way tenfold to just make sure that the experience that you had when you met me is positive when you left. I think that creating a, a world or atmosphere that looks to a degree like that where we can sit down and have uh, conversations regardless of, say, uh, what I look like, what I think. Uh, Too many times I've been lumped into categories just based off of how I look. And I think that where we, I guess, radically turn the page is in addressing the fact that outside appearances, viewpoints uh, do not diminish someone's value as a person, but they contribute to the overall uh, meaning and definition of who that person is. And at the point that we respect that, at the point that we grow to uh, understand, I guess you could say just how small we are in a very large world, I think that that being my radical dream will make the biggest difference in how we can more or less uh, interact across difference. My radical dream is FLM. And that's a kind of cliche, but I want to empower communities, right? That's been one of the biggest things, as well as decolonizing education. What that looks like, dialogues like this, right? How can we get each other in the same room and really come to an understanding, but how can we also liberate others while also empowering them through conversation, right? Through discourse. This is just the necessary facets to this FLM. FLM is doing quite a bit of work in all regards, but... Curriculum has definitely been my thing and another project that we hope to uh, accomplish within our next project with the school. So FLM is my radical dream. All right. I want to thank you both, CJ and Alham, for joining me today. 
I really enjoyed our conversation. I look forward to having more conversations like this in the future. Uh, thank you to Jackie in the third space. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Dream Radically Podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Liberating Minds. Learn more about the work of Foundation for Liberating Minds at our website, foundationforliberatingminds.org, our social media pages at Foundation4LM, and consider getting connected with the podcast and all our members by supporting this work through our Patreon, patreon.com slash foundation4LM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate the pod wherever you're listening. Power, and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams. Thank you.